0: What did Jesus really say and what did he really do and what did he mean in all of these teachings and actions? Now, I would like for you to think for a moment about the various versions of Jesus that are in our society today. On the more conservative side, among conservative churches... There's this very popular view of Jesus. It it sees Jesus as a supernatural being called God. With a supernatural son being Jesus. And the father sends this son to be born of a virgin. So that he can rescue our world. So that he can rescue people out of this world by dying in their place. And as a sign of his divinity, this version of Jesus performs all kinds of impossible feats, miracles. Not the least of which, he dies and rises from the dead. And then, he ascends into heaven. And he's there waiting to welcome his faithful followers. Now in the Catholic version... Of this Jesus, Jesus calls his close follower Peter to found the church. And anyone who wants to be with Jesus here and in the hereafter must join Peter's movement. In the Protestant version, Jesus commissions his followers to write the New Testament, which reveals the absolute truth about Jesus and once more how to get to heaven when you die. Now, on the more skeptical side of things, there's this view that Jesus was a mild-mannered teacher, a religious leader, but nothing more than that. He was one of the great teachers down through the ages, but he certainly wasn't God. He was born in an ordinary way. He taught people how to love one another. He taught us how to pay attention to the marginalized. But the idea of being a supernatural son of God never really occurred to him. He'd been horrified to hear that claim given to him. He would have been horrified to think that a church was founded on his memory and he did not actually physically rise from the dead. Those stories about Jesus rising from the dead, on the skeptical side of things, those are the inventions. Of his kind of wild-eyed followers who were devastated at his loss. And those stories snowballed into legends. And they got written up in these documents we have now called the Gospels. The Gospels that we have in the Bible, these are the legends that grew in the decades following his life. If you want to find out about Jesus himself, you have to work back through the fog of hero worship. Now, in the more extreme version of this Jesus, we get the followers of Karl Marx, who see Christianity as a way of keeping the hungry masses quiet. We've got the followers of Friedrich Nietzsche, who see Jesus as someone who taught a very wimpy religion that that saps the energy out of humanity. Then there are the modern versions of Marx and Freud and Nietzsche, people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris and their celebrated um, celebrity counterparts like Ricky Gervais and Stephen Fry, they say that God himself is a delusion, that the church is a giant confidence trick, that Christianity is based on a whole series of mistakes and that it's Deeply out of touch and out of date. It's bad for your health. It's massively disproved. It's socially disastrous. And it is ridiculously incoherent. Now these are all versions of Jesus alive in our culture today. Who was Jesus? What did he really say? What did he really do? And what did he really mean by his teachings and his actions? The passages of scripture that we've read this morning are critical to answering that question. These are actually historical eyewitness testimonies. Now, you don't have to believe their claims, but there is ample evidence... That we can have confidence this is actually what the eyewitnesses were saying about Jesus. This is what the eyewitnesses believed Jesus himself was saying and doing. The problem with so many of the versions of Jesus in our culture today. Is they're parroting people without actually taking the historical data seriously. Now, what happens when we take these sayings seriously? What happens when we look at this historical data and we have some integrity in taking it and sifting through it and listening to what it's actually claiming? Now, you can act, at the end of the day, you can reject what it's claiming, but before you reject it, at least take it seriously. What I want us to do for just a few minutes is take our first reading seriously, the one that Justin did outside. On Thursday night, we'll take another part of it seriously. On Friday night, another part of it seriously. And on Sunday, we'll take another portion of it seriously. But here's one of the beauties of Holy Week in the Christian church. It's all one piece. And so tonight, we're going to, this morning, we're going to take the first part. Jesus's entry into Jerusalem, these things he said, these things he did that precipitated in a violent mob's reaction, resulting in his murder. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 19, verse 28. This description of Jesus's journey into Jerusalem, just a few short days Before his crucifixion. Let's pick up actually. Prior to where Justin read. Let's pick up in chapter 19 verse 1. He entered Jericho. Now Jericho. Is the lowest point on the face of the earth. And Jesus is walking from Jericho. To Jerusalem. Mile and. After uphill mile, through the Judean desert, he's climbing, he's climbing halfway up. Guess what? He reaches sea level. He's climbed a long way from the Jordan Valley, but he still has to ascend a fairly sizable mountain. Now, in this area, it is almost always hot. It seldom rains. It's almost always dusty. He's about to enter Jerusalem. He's planned it. This is going to be the climax of his ministry. Everything he's been saying, everything he's been doing has been on a trajectory that culminates in this moment. When he enters into the city of Jerusalem. And he knows what's about to happen. He's been predicting what's going to happen. He's been saying it to the people. He's been struggling with it himself. We even find him at one moment, we'll see this on Friday night, begging God for any other way. But he is determined to meet it head on. Now, it is this Jesus that you need to see cresting the top of the Mount of Olives. And can you sense the relief and the excitement among Jesus and this crowd around them as they exchange the barren, dusty desert for lush, green landscape? Particularly at this time of the year. We know this time of the year is the Passover. This is the height of spring. Not the moment in spring we're in here in the valley right now. And at last he stops climbing. The crowd around him. They stand on the summit of the Mount of Olives. And there, glistening in the sun, is Jerusalem. It's finally come within their field of vision. The Golden City. It's just across a valley. A very deep, but a narrow valley. Sitting there on a slightly smaller hill, Jerusalem. Now for Jesus... This is the moment. He takes a deep breath because he is about to do something that will set in motion his death. For Jesus, it's a royal occasion, something that he has planned precisely. Something that he is going to do in an exact way in order to make a very precise claim. So he sins for an animal. Now why does he do this? Is he tired? No, remember this is a Jesus that has trekked hill and dell over all of Israel for several years. It's not that he's tired. He's not too tired to walk the last couple of miles to the culminating event of everything he's been saying and everything he's doing. He's not tired. That's not what he's doing. No, he chooses not just an animal to ride, but a particular animal for a particular reason. He chooses a young foal, a colt. That's what it says in verses 28 to 35. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Look, if you're reading this seriously, if you're taking it seriously as literature and as a historical document, you stop right there and say, why? He's been walking everywhere. Page after page. He walks here, he walks there. Why suddenly, for the first and only time in Scripture, does he call for an animal? It's because he is deliberately acting out the drama described in the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Listen to these words written hundreds of years earlier that every Jew in that day would have known by heart. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey." See, Jesus stops, takes a breath, and says, That's who I am. That's what this is. This is the climax of his public ministry. Jesus is entering Jerusalem in a way that is making a claim. He is saying something by his actions that is far more powerful than he could have said with words alone. What does he mean by riding in Jerusalem? On this donkey at this particular moment in the year of Israel. What is he doing? He is claiming to be the king. He's claiming it in the loudest way you could claim it in that culture. He is saying at long last the true king of Israel and thus of the whole world has arrived. Now you don't have to believe that. In fact, I'm not even trying to convince you that's true. I'm just saying when you take it seriously for what it is, this is what the scriptures are saying Jesus did. This is what the eyewitnesses saw him to do. This is testimony. Now you can reject that as an ultimate statement of truth, but let's at least have the integrity to say that Jesus did claim this. He claimed to be the king of Israel and thus the king of the world. And the Jewish people get it. They've been waiting for this moment for centuries. And so what do they do? They start taking off their cloaks and spreading them along the road for him. That's what it says in verse 36. So down they go, down the steep path to the kid, through the Kidron Valley, and then the crowd begins to sing. All the old songs begin flooding back, especially Psalm 118. This song of victory, this hymn of praise to God, to the God who defeats all of his foes and establishes his kingdom. That's verse 37 and 38. They're singing and chanting and cheering and laughing. At last their dreams will come true. But not everyone is buying it. In verse 39, we see that the religious leaders are not singing. They do not like what is going on. On the one hand, this is dangerous. Jesus is playing with fire. The Romans, with their garrisoned armies in that area, do not like excited crowds singing songs of victory over their enemies. And the religious leaders know that in a flash, this could attract the ire of an army that has a long-established pattern of squelching this sort of thing in an immediate, fierce and deadly way. But on the other hand. The real issue. The real issue for the religious leaders. Is that they reject. Who Jesus is claiming to be. And they reject how the crowds are bought into this. And they're affirming this. And they refuse to accept Jesus. As the king of Israel. And thus of the whole world. So they asked Jesus to put a stop to all of this dangerous nonsense. And in verse 40, Jesus refuses to stop this dangerous stuff. Instead, see, one of the problems with our Bibles is we stop reading at all the little paragraph breaks. But what? in the midst of all the singing and the shouting and the chanting and the joy and the anger of the religious leaders, what is Jesus doing? He's weeping. He looks across the Kidron Valley. He looks up on the Temple Mount. He sees the city, Jerusalem, the golden, the locus and symbol of so much that he loves. And in the midst of the victory chants... Jesus weeps. Now earlier in the Gospels, if you're taking this literature seriously, earlier in the Gospels, other people are crying. The widow of Nan, Jairus' family. And there's always someone there to comfort the crying person. But suddenly we find someone in tears with no one to comfort them. And it is Jesus. He weeps over Jerusalem. Look at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Now look, the way the entire account of Luke's gospel is structured it sets up this moment as a central insight into the heart of what Jesus understood about himself what he was teaching and what he was doing in this moment it's like the the whole narrative stops And you get an insight into the core of the Christian gospel. That's the way the literature is functioning. This was not a moment of weakness. Again and again, during his long journey to Jerusalem, Jesus had warned Israel of their impending judgment. Again and again, they refused God's grace And over the last several weeks, we've looked at some of these moments in Jesus' pilgrimage to Jerusalem, where he told Israel, unless you repent, you will perish. And now, it's too late. They've hardened their hearts beyond repair. And in that moment, the same God, that hovered over the waters of creation, who called forth all things, weeps. Can you see, Jesus? Can you see that this God of justice is not gloating? He's not saying, I told you so, serves you right. Again and again, Jesus has claimed to be the Son of God, which means that He is God Himself in the flesh, and He has come into the world to fulfill the long story of Israel. And in fulfilling Israel's story, He is claiming that He is the King not only of Israel, but He is the the King of the world. He is the way the world will be healed, He is the way you will be healed. He is the way the rocks and the streams will be healed. He is the way your family will be healed. He is the way nations will be healed. He is the solution. But notice, while he is a king of justice, his justice is not a stern and cold justice. It's a justice flowing from the heart Of a God of love. In this moment. You see both of these things held together. He wants the best for Israel. But now he must oppose this nation. Because they are utterly corrupt. They have refused God. They have refused God's call to be his people. They have set their own agenda before the plans of God. They have committed themselves to a national rebellion against Rome. And they have utterly failed to enact justice within their own society. They have rejected the only solution. And what is the only solution? It is to repent and believe the story that Jesus is saying about himself. To believe that that is the true story. The religious leaders reject the story by saying Jesus is only a man. And the crowds reject this story. Even though they believe he's the king. It is a king on their own terms. And in both cases. They are refusing to believe what Jesus himself claims about himself. And therefore with sorrow and tears. Jesus lays out the consequences of their steadfast refusal to believe in the real Jesus and his real message. Verse 43. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now God has already done this twice to Israel. He did it in 722 BC when the Assyrians conquered Israel. He did it again in 586 BC with the Babylonians. And now he is saying to Israel. It will happen now for the last time. The Romans, the very enemy that you want me to deliver you from, they will be the instrument of my wrath. And it did happen. It's a historical fact. No one doubts. No one, no one doubts that 40 years after, in AD, no one doubts the Romans marched into Jerusalem after building an embankment around it. After hemming in the people, they entered the city, they slaughtered the citizens, they raised the buildings to the ground. It was a bloodbath, it was total destruction. And look, either you have to insist this was written after that occurred, or you have to deal with the fact that Jesus precisely predicted it. Jesus knows what lies ahead. So he weeps for Jerusalem. As he sees the suffering that's coming. So Jesus is the king of Israel. And by being the king of Israel, he is the, the world's true Lord. But Israel rejects him. So the last paragraph. He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. Again, it would be a mistake to read this episode as some explosion of anger. This is just as premeditated. It is just as calculated as Jesus asking for a cult for his entry into Jerusalem. He is doing something here that is deeply symbolic, and it's got it's got serious and precise scriptural overtones. He's doing two things. Number one, he is claiming authority over the temple. Everybody knew the chief priests ruled the temple, but the scriptures were clear when the true king of Israel returned, he would exercise authority over the temple. So, just like he did with the donkey, he's using his actions to claim that he is Israel's king and thus the world's right and true Lord. Number two. When Jesus clears out this portion of the temple, it's not just that he's upset over some act of socioeconomic injustice. What he's done is he's struck at the thing that can stop all of the temple's actions. If those guys weren't doing what they were doing, you could not offer sacrifices. And if you couldn't offer sacrifices, the temple stopped. That was its whole purpose of existence. So Jesus stopped the temple's actions. What he was doing was saying, I am God. And it's done. The temple is redundant and useless now. Because the true temple is here. And this is the straw that broke the camel's back. When we read later on, for his trial and crucifixion, it was him messing with the temple that sealed his fate. What I'm saying to you is that when Jesus chose the donkey and when Jesus entered the temple and did what he did, he signed his death warrant with full awareness. He knew that it would set into effect a series of actions that would lead to his brutal murder. Why? Because Of love. Because he loves you. And he loves his creation. And this was the only solution. For him to bring all of the evil to a head. And then to light the match. And step in front of it himself. Today is the beginning of Holy Week. We are remembering and celebrating and living into these final events leading up to the cross and then the resurrection. Thursday, we'll come back into this room and we'll celebrate the tender experience of the Last Supper. And then the awful reality Of his crucifixion, we'll come back into this room and remember and and try to enter into that on Friday night. And then on Saturday, the deafening silence as Jesus lay in the tomb. And then on Sunday, we'll gather before daybreak on a hill or a valley, Shenandoah Valley version of a mountain in Dayton. And as the sun rises, like God's people for thousands of years, we will declare the resurrection of our Christ. But as we enter into this, what I'm begging you to do is to just push pause. Push pause in all the events of your life and answer this question. Do you believe in Jesus. See, there's two ways to reject him. One is by insisting he was just a man. But another, insisting that he was God's son, that he is king, but making him into the king of your own image. See, you've got this incredible image, don't you? You've got the crowds who said, yes, he's king, but they were wrong about what kind of king he was. They were just projecting on him in some Freudian move, their own inner, inner fantasies. And then you've also got the religious leaders who said, no, he's not the son of God. He was not born of a virgin. He's just a man, a powerful man, an incredible teacher, but just a man. Now the question for you, Have you accepted Jesus on his terms? That's the crux of your life. That's the crux of your eternity. Jesus is the king of Israel. But he is not the king that Israel expected, he is marching toward victory. But it is a victory they do not understand. He is going to his enthronement, but it is not the type of ceremony they are expecting. The crowds have refused to listen to him. The religious leaders have refused to listen to him. They have refused the king and his kingdom. What about you? Let's reason together. Jesus says... Unless you repent, unless you admit that your whole life is built around something other than me, you are doomed. But if you do repent of that, if you do believe in me, you will be saved. Now, teenagers, children, adults, grandparents, you cannot face a more serious challenge. Have you repented? And do you believe in Jesus? If you have, rejoice. And as we enter into this week, rejoice. Rejoice. That God in his incredible love has forgiven you of all of your sins. And you are in his family. And you will be a part of the resurrection. And his spirit is in your life. And even now you can begin to experience and to labor for resurrection life. But if you've not ever done that. Then beware. Beware, we have a loving God and the Bible refuses to separate justice and love. Even if it's that, even if that's difficult for your worldview, you can't separate it. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes?